0: If you have been following the Discover More journey, you know that I've been using Spotify for podcasters since 2020. Download the Spotify for podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters, spotify.com slash podcasters to start creating immediately. This week's guest is Dr. Austin Chang, an esteemed physician in interventional and weight loss endoscopy. Austin is one of the few doctors in the world that's triple board certified in internal medicine, GI, and obesity medicine. He received his bachelor's degree at Duke University and went on to complete his medical and MPH trainings at Columbia University and Harvard Medical School. You can find his press coverages on outlets such as New York Times, Men's Health, BBC News, and more. Austin uses the power of social media and comedy to not only educate the public with an evidence-based approach, but also in an attempt to break down the multitude barriers of misinformation to further impact his social media presence, which can be found across Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and even TikTok. He found the Association for Healthcare Social Media the first nonprofit society for health professionals social media usage. Currently, Dr. Cheng is the Assistant Professor of Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals in Philadelphia and serves as the director of the endoscopic weight loss program and chief medical school media officer for Jefferson Health System. In this episode, Austin shares his mission of using social media to dispel misinformation and educate the public on the complexities of the healthcare system. Unlike many doctors, Austin didn't always know that he wanted to study medicine. He always kept an open mind, studying a wide array of subjects in college and now evaluating opportunities in seemingly unrelated fields. He credits this open-mindedness for much of his success and that is a big topic of this week's conversation. We also discussed the importance of sharing one's voice on social media, the necessity of acknowledging nuance, and his initial perspectives around the COVID-19 vaccination. We hope you enjoy this week's episode of Discover More with us and Dr. Austin Chang. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More where we strive to accelerate the
1: learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more.
0: Austin, awesome. welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, I'm excited to be on.
0: Yeah, we're very honored to have you on the show and super excited for this conversation. So there is so many areas and so many dimensions to your stories, to your professions, to your expertise. But where I like to start off is one of your many expertise which is social media and your large presence. And you've dedicated Predominant aspects of your social media presence on debunking and demystifying a lot of medical usage and misinformation. Because I think one of the blessings and the curses of living in today's ubiquitous era is everyone have access to information. Everyone is self-proclaimed experts on any field. And one of the series that you do that caught my attention is trashtogram And so I love that concept. And you have this amazing approach to combine comedy, but also science to not just to call people out, but to truly educate the people through comedy. And my question to you is like, for someone like you, a physician is obviously live with a very highly demanding schedule and life. And you told me this beforehand that there's not that many people like you online. There's not that many expert physicians have large social media presence because you're so busy. So for someone that's as demanding as you are in all aspects of your life, why did you feel compelled to, A, create a series such as Trash and B, devote already limited and finite amount of time you have and resources towards such outlets to promote, to break down the barriers of misinformation and to, you know, take down other people who's intentionally spreading rumors and false information online?
2: Well, thank you for those kind words. I think that the motivation behind this has always been to put out accurate information. And I think I noticed early on in my career and training that patients um, were getting their medical information from other sources outside of the one-on-one clinical encounters that we usually have as doctors. Uh, As soon as they step foot out of the office or the clinic or the hospital, there's so much information out there. There's a barrage of just medical knowledge and uh, information being thrown at people through traditional media and through social media these days, and that really has an impact on people's health outcomes. You know, it's uh, not uncommon to see some people follow certain pieces of advice they might gather on the internet or on social media and end up in the hospital because it's interfering with the treatment plan that was that they were supposed to uh, follow through with. And so that's really what the motivation has been behind trying to debunk some of the misinformation out there and you know, I have not found it effective to try, and kind of go after people like you said and necessarily call them out one by one. I think it's more educating on a broader level of how to interpret the information and kind of suss out what the, what the nuances are when you come across certain tidbits of medical knowledge online and what to look out for. You know, we all follow certain people online who we trust and how do we kind of verify who they are, and how do we verify the information that they're putting out there. And that's sort of the the concept that I'm trying to drive across and not necessarily just calling individuals out because I think that's not really an effective way of going about it.
1: That's a really good point. The thing that really jumps out to me is that it's not just a hobby of education through Instagram or social media in general, but really like you're bridging the gap between social media and the true physician work. Specifically you mentioned that you were the first, I guess, C-suite of social media, which I think is just fascinating. It's one thing for people to have that, you know, side hobby of YouTube or Instagram, but you're really kind of trying to bring that to life within the physician practice itself. So I was wondering if you could walk us through a little bit how that came to be. Like, did you invent this position of say, "Hey, I could do this," or like what was that process like of becoming the chief medical social media officer?
2: So, I mean, I think that it was social media has always been a hobby of mine. I wouldn't do it if I didn't think it was fun. And the truth is that if I didn't actually use it professionally, I would probably be using all the different platforms for fun and just scrolling for hours on end um, either way. And so there came a point in time when I noticed these things that I was, those patterns that I was mentioning about patients coming into the hospital because of misinformation. And so I wanted to really understand how medical knowledge was being transmitted to the general public and so i took it upon myself a couple years ago to spend some time at abc news to figure out how the medical news is being vetted and why is it that like the news stories that show up on your evening news how did that who chooses what gets to be on the evening news who fact checks what ends up on the news so spent some time behind the scenes at abc news learning that process and in the time that i was there they were using Twitter to host weekly chats, which I don't think are happening anymore, but it certainly gave me a glimpse into how social media could be used to foster productive conversations about healthcare. And that got me to shift my Twitter presence from a personal one to a professional one. And eventually I, you know, that took me to other platforms as well, Instagram a couple of years ago, and then later YouTube and TikTok. And it's kind of funny because I always wanted to start a YouTube channel back in the day, but I just didn't feel like, I didn't know what my angle was. And if I was supposed to talk about medicine, at the time I didn't feel like I was enough of an authority to be able to talk about it and feel comfortable talking about it. So so I started helping the professional societies in my field out with their social media efforts. Um, Because of all the experience that I was having on the different platforms, uh, I also started doing social media research using data from the social media platforms. And one step at a time, I kind of built this academic niche within my field that ultimately led to, you know, getting the master's in public health and seeing how that could help me out with this whole journey. And then the title and the role of Chief Medical Social Media Officer came about through a conversation with our hospital CEO. And I'm very fortunate to be at a place where they're very forward-thinking and innovative. Not all institutions are like that, but our CEO is definitely the type of person who really values social media and communication with, the, with our communities, both local and national, or even beyond that. And after hearing about my experience on social media, said, hey, why don't we create this position for you? And so my role now doing that is really being the liaison between the clinicians at the hospital with the media relations team, trying to educate and inspire more health professionals to get online to speak their truth and you know talk about the areas of expertise where they were trained in. And then also to help out with any social media campaigns the institution is trying to run and also in shaping the social media policy. So it's a pretty new type of position and um, we're still trying to figure out, you know, it's, it's an evolving one, especially with just as the social media platforms are evolving. We're also having to see if there are other needs within social media that we need to address. So, yeah, it's kind of a work in progress.
1: Definitely, man. I appreciate you sharing. I think there's definitely a lot to unpack there, but I kind of want to double click on one of the things that you recently said of the importance of sharing one's story or uh, Mm -hmm. speaking their truth. In the present day, when everyone and their mother seemingly has something to say online, I think it's important to kind of clarify or build some refinement around why it's important to share personal experiences personal perspectives and it's clear that you're trying to empower other physicians grad students just people in general to share their experience why do you think that that is an important mission for everyone to kind of adventure down
2: yeah i mean i think first things first i'm definitely not the only one doing this at this point nor was i the very first one to be on social media as a doctor that's for sure uh, but I do think that over time, we've seen a shift of putting ourselves more into our social media presence rather than just simply being a professional on there spewing facts. And I think my motivation is because there's so much distrust in our healthcare system and in health professionals, uh, we've seen that play out with the pandemic. And I think that it's important to show that you know, we're human beings too, we have personalities, we have the same struggles and interests and the same questions that everyone else has. We might have a different perspective because we have more context and we're able to interpret the science more readily. And that's why I think it's important to like kind of put the two together and show that, hey, we're human beings, we have the same sort of concerns and we have families too, and we you know live in this country as well. So um, that way people can relate and you know we can empathize with one another.
0: Yeah, there is a saying that I that always comes up for me is feelings don't care about facts. The fact that you brought up pandemic is a such a relevant situation and topic for everyone with the issues of vaccinations, with the issues of wearing masks, with the issues of COVID-19. The fact that those issues themselves have became a debate topic is ludicrous to me. Just the same way the fact that climate change is a debate like what is there to debate about the science is very clear right so it tells us that it's not about facts it's not about science it's not about your title as a doctor it's the recipient's side are they receptive towards what you have to deliver but if the feelings are there acting as barriers your facts aren't going through to them and i think one of the most effective avenues and vehicles to achieve that impact change on an individual and collective level is storytelling because there's a lot of sentiment through storytelling right like music is storytelling food is storytelling I definitely want to stay on this topic for a bit, but I want to go back to your story. You almost glossed over this, but mm-hmm. you told us that a few years ago, you just casually took an in- initiative to study the behind-the-scenes operations, how ABC News vet their news source. If I were correct, a few years ago, weren't you doing your fellowship?
2: So yeah, the, when I was, did that at ABC News, I was a resident. And um, I had heard that there were a couple residents before me who had done a similar thing I think with a different sort of motivation, I think that they were wanting to maybe, you know, write some more or, you know, potentially be on TV. But I think, yeah, it was through hearing about that there were already existing avenues that I went about this and there is a formal program now. And so I, you know, had an elective month and spent that time at ABC News and it was great. I mean, I was always curious about this process and really got insight into how, you know all the medical journals when it's time for them to release a new issue they have embargo they have press releases just like you know any other press releases out there but they have their um, you know content that they're about to publish and they want to you know have the media cover it at the same time as when the journal is getting published and so you know sometimes there are some flashy headlines in these press releases And we're there as a team to kind of vet whether or not those headlines really match with what's being put out there. And does it truly have the impact that they're saying? Because sometimes there's a sometimes a scary headline saying like, well, this substance is gonna potentially could cause cancer and it's linked to, you know, whatever food product out there. And you read it more in detail and you realize that, oh, the trial was you know, done in animals and it was, you know, a super high dose that we would never consume like as normal human beings and that sort of thing. And so you really take it with a grain of salt. But unfortunately, I think that not all news networks out there have the same approach. And so a lot of them will take that information at surface value and just throw it on the news. And that's part of the reason why we might have some of this misinformation. know floating around so you know the past year i would think that if anything there's been more attention to trying to curb some of this misinformation and pay a little more attention to detail when it comes to health related stories
0: yeah just for the listeners uh, i know you talked about your residence and i only came to understand how busy you guys truly are through my girlfriend and once again, you gloss over so nonchalantly that oh yeah, during your elective month, you casually took initiative to ABC News. Where do you think that ability to initiate and your ability to to foster this impeccable work ethics came from? Because I'm sure many of your peers and coworkers during their elective month they chose to wind down, decompress, and relax because your life as a resident is no life at all. So like, <laughs> but you found the need, found the calling to take the initiative, to invite yourself as part of that vetting process, to see how it's being delivered. But what, what did that ability do you think came from? Your ability to initiate, your ability to be so be compelled towards impact making and just your work ethics overall?
2: I think I'm always evaluating opportunities as they come my way. I'm very open-minded, so I don't really get pigeonholed in my thinking. I'm always, you know, I don't think I would be doing the social media thing if I really... Thought that way because academic medicine, especially, kind of drives you down this assembly line. And as long as you follow the formula and go through the steps, you'll come out safe. And so I've always had this curiosity as well. And I think that because there's just so much that factors into it, right? Like it's not just simply that I had one wish. I think it was also the opportunity and the timing and the fact that I was living in New York City that gave me the ability to do this. I think if I had lived, somewhere else where I had to make the trip to relocate for a month or so, it may have not happened, but I think in general, to answer your question, it really is about just keeping an open mind and evaluating opportunity every time it sort of comes about because, you know, even through med school, I changed my mind many, many times about what I was going to do as a specialty and that's because I Kind of open myself up to all the different possibilities throughout the time I was there so our third year in medical school we have required rotations where we re- rotate each month or so through a different specialty whether it's pediatrics or surgery or OBGYN and all these different specialties and it's our chance to learn but also to get exposure to these different fields and decide whether or not they're right for us. Some people are just, you know, enter med school because they're so sure that they are going to become a certain kind of doctor. And for me, I really said, hey, I'm going to explore because you just never know what could be a good fit, because I just simply didn't know what certain fields were like. And, and that's the approach that I think I've taken both within medicine and also outside of medicine, too.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'm kind of hearing the Importance of both curiosity and trying the thing. I think that's something I've been experimenting a lot with my life is sometimes The best way to learn is just to try it like you can read books after books after books But really diving into the thing is the key way to learn and I was wondering <laughs> if you could see if or I guess expand on Is that a theme that's kind of prevailed in your journey as a whole if we could kind of rewind a little bit? Here your personal story. Did you always know you wanted to be a doctor or did you like try specific things that? told you that you wanted to do that? Was this a, you read a book that then told you to be a doctor. You had a medical circumstance that inspired you towards that. I just think this open-mindedness and curiosity is clearly a value. And I was wondering if those were two of the things that led you into medicine in your, you know, upbringing childhood.
2: I think definitely that played into it. I had the fortune of having a couple of family members who are in medicine. So I have, um, my grandfather was a World War II surgeon in Taiwan. And then I have a couple uncles and cousins who are physicians. I have a a cousin who's a a pharmacist. And that gave me some exposure into medicine as a whole. Although looking back and really thinking about it now, none of that really matches what I consider, you know, what my job looks like now. Um, Or even my specialty. There's no one else who you know who practices in my specialty in my family, but it gave me kind of it planted that seed early on that this was something that potentially I would want to do, and I think that I was exposed to a couple like different volunteer experiences growing up. You know, my parents. I have to credit them for trying to maximize my experiences as a kid, and. you know, not only in like learning things, but also, you know, giving back and kind of instilling these sorts of values. Naturally, I think that I gravitated more toward the curiosity aspect that that we were talking about and and science. I think that that was another major driving force. So putting those two things together is really what landed me in medicine. Although in college, I, again, kept tried to keep an open mind. I thought, you know, maybe I would, want to explore political science or economics or you know all these different other things so i made it a conscious effort to try to take different classes in every single you know broad field out there to at least test the waters and see if maybe it would sway me to go in in a different direction but ultimately i didn't and uh and you know i kind of learned and did a lot of soul searching during college to think about okay when I am actually older, let's say if I'm you know, in my 70s or 80s, looking back on my entire life, what would I feel is most fulfilling? What would I be happy with as like a career choice, you know, knowing my own personality and knowing what my goals in life are? And, and I felt like that being a physician was the best fit. I know there's no ideal fit, but it was sort of the best fit that I, I thought I could come up with.
0: I mean, I feel like we could end our podcast here. That was... uh... (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what you just explained is something we always preach and practice is like employing or deploying hindsight as foresight, right? You almost found this way to cultivate into the foresight piece to reevaluate your life from a hindsight perspective to see if it's a profession that you will be worthy of A and B fulfilling for you, right? To me, it sounds like you're a poly learner. Like for me, I'm a mono learner to the fault. So that applies to my reading. I can only read one book at a time until recently when I'm really interested in a particular topic, I just get fully immersed into that one topic. But I can't st- study multiple topics at once. That's just how I operate. But you sound like more of the latter, poly learner, where you're able to uh, immerse in multiple different disciplinary approach and to find something that works for you.
2: Maybe. I mean, I sometimes I feel like I'm not a good multitasker. So I think that, you know, to a certain extent, maybe I'm kind of with you on like just focusing one at a time, but I feel like I can shift gears frequently. So it's definitely not like all at the same time. And even with my approach today on social media or everything else I'm doing, I don't feel like I'm doing everything at once, I feel like I'm sequentially trying to shift my priorities back and forth. Yeah, to, to try to fulfill all my desires. But it's not, um, yeah, not all at once. Though.
1: <laughs> Definitely. The analogy that really comes up for me is like tunnel vision, right? Of just I think, especially when we're kind of focusing on something that's really complex or requires a lot of energy, it's really easy to just get like singularly focused on that one thing that almost there becomes blinders on either side of us. But from even your experience in college, it's clear that even though you had that internal urge to do medicine, you're still experimenting with different things. You mentioned poli-sci, just making sure that there weren't things, you know, on the other side of the blinders, even though obviously medicine requires so much effort and enthusiasm. And I think the one element of your story that really jumps out to me that expands off of this idea is the MPH that you did, because that's such a clear evolution of medicine and probably different perspectives. So I was wondering, as someone who's curious about the MPH program and just public health in general, especially after the year that we just had, what did your experience in Harvard's MPH program look like?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that it's it really showed me just how complicated healthcare really is. I think a lot of people... May think that oh, just because you're a doctor, you must know everything about healthcare and about you know how health is executed here in the U.S. But there's just so much that goes into it, and so much that we as doctors or other clinicians, you know, people on the front lines, aren't able to do. You know, you can be the best at your job and do everything perfectly, and still there's so many other external factors and system wide issues that determine our success in having a healthy community and country. I mean, even now, when we think about like our pandemic response, think about the vaccine rollout, those are things that are not within the control of individual doctors. And so the intention for me, so I got my master's in public health during my fellowship. So it was well into training. This was not like a combined MD, MPH program, which I know a lot of people do these days. But for me, if I look back when I was a medical student, I would have not known what I was gonna do with the Masters of Public Health. Some people have a clear direction, you know, in what they wanna achieve with that, but I, at that age and at that stage in my life, I certainly didn't. And further along, I think I had more context of what exactly I wanted to do with it. And interestingly enough, when I was a fellow, the intention with, behind the master's was really to gain biostatistics skills, and it was kind of built into my fellowship. So every fellowship and every training program, whether it's residency or, or fellowship, is different and it varies a lot by specialty. For me, the fellowship that I had was clinically heavy at first, but it left a lot of time to do research and do other things like get a master's. And unfortunately, not all fellowships are like that, a lot of fellowships are just clinically heavy the entire time so it leaves you with no time to do anything else but harvard and a lot of other kind of big academic centers are very um are trying to cultivate researchers and other types of leaders like that so they really encouraged us to take courses at the school of public health if not getting a full master's and when you just flip through the syllabus i guess of the um of what the master's program is like there's not only biostatistics, but some people take this degree and go in so many different directions. You know, you could go into global health, you could go into health management, health policy. There's just so many different ways you can use it. And you can imagine if people are interested in global health, that's a whole different track, right? Which is why I think unless you have a really clear vision of what you're trying to do with the masters, you may wanna sit down and actually think about what you're trying to get out of it because ultimately it'll only be one little aspect out of the entire health system that you'll understand a little better. So for me, initially it was biostatistics, so it's very research oriented. But later on, I halfway through it, I really wanted to focus more on public health leadership, under understanding health systems a bit better, health communication, obviously, with the social media thing. And so that's where I kind of uh, shifted a little bit halfway through. But yeah, I think that, um, again, it was really eye opening in terms of like the complexities of what how healthcare works and what the social determinants of health are out there and what you know why health policy is important why ultimately even though a lot of people don't like to think of healthcare as a political subject it's heavily influenced by politics you know yeah, like the way our system works is because of the laws that are put in place and um, and who gets to decide what those laws look like, it ultimately ends up in the hands of our political leaders. So it gave me a different perspective. I think that that's the most important lesson that I walked away with from the masters.
0: That resonates with me deeply. And like a quote that comes to my mind, once again, I think the quote goes, I'm paraphrasing, something like, the pessimists are usually right, but the optimists change the world. And I, I share that with you because uh, Aiden and myself, we often talk about offline that we need to contain our pessimism or cynicism because <laughs> I've devoted the last four years of my life getting into the interwovens of the policy realm. And right, I've became increasingly more cynical about the process, but I'm very optimistic about the outcome cuz I know whatever avenues whatever dimensions whatever societal issues at hand whether it's healthcare whether it's politics whether it's racism on and on I know all of that is collectively shifting towards a right direction. I truly truly believe that. The past 300 years in the US alone testified to that belief, but it's it is a slow and steady process. And, you know, so but hearing about the optimism through your storytelling really resonated with me. Because, like you talked about, you have a individual training as an expert in GI, you know, obesity medicine, and so on. But you also have this more of a systematic approach through the MPH, even though your specialty was biostatistics. You know, bounce back to our previous topic with social media. Like you, as someone who embodies both the individual expertise of a physician, but also a systematic lens as an MPH holder, how do you view the intersectionality between education? and medicine and social media, you know, as an as a MD, as an MPH, like how do you see that balancing act?
2: Well, content wise, I think that I'm constantly learning and getting feedback from people about how to best communicate health messages because I think it is a difficult balance to strike. If you imagine, take TikTok for example, you know, if there's a 15 second TikTok or even like the six, full 60 seconds, there's a limited amount of information that you can put in there and try to you know, provide enough context and ex- explanation. And even if you were able to pack so much into 60 seconds, not everyone's gonna watch the whole 60 seconds. So I'm always trying to think about like how do I make the messaging more effective? You know How do we get a point across better? So there's that kind of aspect of the intersectionality in terms of the actual execution of it and like the time commitment and just juggling my different roles. I think that this is something that, again, I'm trying to just always shuffle priorities and the more you do something, the more efficient you get at it. So fortunately, I think that there are certain things that have I've become better at over time um, just by way of doing it more often. Yeah. it, It has required a lot of introspection and reflection over you know what exactly i'm doing here and what type of messages i have put out you know there are certain things that i've said in the past and i'm sure everyone feels this way about like going back to old social media posts and thinking like that's not really what i meant or i my thinking has totally changed since then or you know worse yet like did i say something that didn't seem offensive back then that now could be construed as you know offensive and, and so now I'm trying to be much more active in thinking about how I'm putting out the messages and, uh, and who the audience is. And it always comes down to trying to put myself in the shoes of the patient or patient's family member. If they were to come across my content, what would they say or think? And you can't please everyone. There's always gonna be people who disagree or haters or trolls online, that can't be helped. But I think if you were trying to get a message out, what exactly are you trying to put out there? And will it, does it actually help? And, you know, is it going to be taken the wrong way? And so I try to think extra hard about like all the different angles and how people see what I'm saying and do my best. And that's all I can do.
1: Definitely. That reminds me of an idea that I've been thinking a lot about, and it's the refinement process. And that's almost of anything of health becomes a refinement process of tweaking little things. Social media becomes a refinement process of why did this post do well and this post didn't? Why was there so much more engagement? But really constantly refining and making almost a practice out of that refinement process really comes up for me with that. And I think The question I'd like to ask next is, say you have, you know, this gap of space of more than 60 seconds that TikTok gives you of big health messages that you'd like to communicate to people. What would those things be? Is it, you know, trusting more in the healthcare system, thinking critically about the information they're getting? But what are those big health topics that you'd like to communicate to the everyday person that's trying to live a healthy life?
2: I mean, I'm a gastroenterologist, you know, uh, trained as one, but I think that kind of focusing again on general concepts of how to evaluate the health information is probably even more important. I think that we have seen many examples, especially over the past year, where people are looking at things either as absolutes. There's no gray area in between. And I think we need to start acknowledging that there's gray areas everywhere. And when a doctor is out there like saying like, absolutely not, like chances are it's, they can confidently say something like that, but there may be like a small chance that there's, you know, there are exceptions to every rule. And recognizing that there's always gray areas, I think is really important. And likewise, you know, if you're reading something online, I try to encourage people to double and triple check, you know, what the primary sources are, who they're trusting, ask for other people's opinions and kind of get as much evidence as you can possibly collect. Because when we're, when you think about like any question out there, or even like any, like, let's say a criminal case, they're not going to rely on only one piece of evidence, right? You got to like collect as much as possible to kind of build your story around that. And the same goes for, um, for interpreting health information online. And the same goes for being a physician, you know, like there's often no exact test that will tell us, oh, you have, x disease or y disease it's usually piecing all of the pieces of the puzzle together to come up with a more complete picture and and if people had um, a better sense of you know this is how doctors work this is how health works and how medicine is practiced then maybe there would be a little more leniency I guess I don't know what the word I'm looking for is but it's you know just a little more understanding that you know there aren't always absolutes
1: that's definitely something that we talk a lot about, uh, just the nuance of pretty much everything. You know, I think almost every question yields the answer of it depends. Rarely is there a black and white yes or no, but I think especially in kind of the fluid environment that we live in now, there's always exceptions, there's always those end of one testimonials of someone's experience that might not fit with the black or white specific answer. So I think when navigating that black or white nuanced space it really is important to have different perspectives, different ideas and I think that speaks to your experience of exploring you know the intersection of social media and medicine having this experience at ABC News So what process would you recommend on facilitating different information I always make the joke of if you want to get convinced that you have cancer go look on WebMD and just like read all the articles you know it's like I have a cough and then all of a sudden you think you have some chronic disease but how do you recommend, People in everyday life like getting their healthcare information? Is it balancing different sources, looking at specific sources, obviously talking to a doctor? How would you recommend people going from self study to actually feeling comfortable and confident in the recommendations they're finding?
2: I mean, I think ultimately it does fall on asking your physician or your provider. I think that that's really important because there's always those exceptions and there's always nuances you know mm-hmm. as much as like webmd uh there's a lot of scary things that people can read on there actually i think that they're also taking the initiative to try to you know do a better job at that and educate people on you know the fact that not everything out there <laughs> all the symptoms that people have necessarily means the worst diagnosis and you know i think that there's more and more attention in general about healthcare and media and you know health messaging. So hopefully we'll see that things get better in general so that people will have you know better cues to be able to interpret this themselves. I mean, even a lot of social media platforms over the past year with the pandemic, I'm sure anyone who's spent time on any major social media platform, you know, there are COVID-19 tags on everything. And, you know, those are all helpful and great. Like, you know, it redirects you to the CDC or other kind of official agencies. But I think the even more helpful tags and cues that they they put on there are the ones saying that this article is actually from a couple years ago or there are certain context clues that they'll throw in there now. It's not just sending you off to a different website or simply plucking out the information. Yes, a lot of these platforms are starting to you know try they try to curb misinformation and disinformation just by blocking certain accounts or taking down certain pieces of content. But I think these cues are even more helpful so that people can even, I would imagine that a lot of people probably would see an article with a label that says, Oh, this, this article is from two years ago and never previously have thought like, Oh yeah, that makes a difference. You know, Mm -hmm. something that was two years old, that's two years old may not be applicable today. And that's just like one little step in helping people understand, like, these are the things that we also have to critically appraise every time that we read a medical article and you know when we're asked to you know within the academic community review other people's publications before they are actually published and you know provide comments we're also trying to pick out all the different things that you know could either be misinterpreted or certain gaps in the research that you know should have been addressed and it's the same sort of things that we we try to identify there as well.
0: Yeah, this is so not fair. And just like the idea of how daunting it is for the everyday consumers to have to vet out and parse through the information. I mean, like, how do you expect these moms and pops who have their entire lives, their families to take care of, pay their bills, and now they have the task to parse their information themselves. It sounds daunting for college educated people like us, you know, and I shared this recently in the show. A few years ago, Denzel Washington shared this in a red carpet interview where there was a fake news saying that he was OD'd on heroin the night before this rep carpet event. But obviously he's alive and well and he showed up. And one of the journalists was asking him about the fake news article. And he said this, and this is a quote that I always come to whenever it's applicable. He said that in today's age, if you read, uh, if you do not read news, you're uninformed. But if you read too much news, you're misinformed. That's why the importance, the sacredness of information, you know, falls onto the shoulders of journalists. But unfortunately, I think you know, this probably better than we do. Is a lot of the journalists have unfortunately lost that purity, and you know, obviously they have to pay their bills, they have to chase after the headlines. But that's why I think people like you, as the vanguard on this space, is so important, and your advocacy work is so, so, so important.
2: Bring up a really good point, actually, because I don't, I don't know if you know who actually is responsible for accurate information. Should it be me as a health professional? Am I responsible for making sure the public gets the right health information? Is it the media? Is it the politicians who are you know the legislators out there? I think there's no right answer. I don't know if it necessarily should completely fall on the journalists' shoulders to, to do that as well. I mean, I think that they have a tremendous responsibility, yes but I think that I, I wish that our government could also reform our education system a bit to empower our younger generations to learn more about science and learn more about health. I mean, many of us would argue that certain aspects of education um, through middle school and high school like could be focused on other things rather than what they're currently teaching. And similarly, like for health professionals, I think that yes, we may be responsible to a certain extent as well, but we need to be given the tools to be able to do it. You know, you can't just say like, oh, just because you're a doctor or a nurse or a dentist or whoever, that that's just part of your job without giving us the tools to do that, without actually incorporating this into medical school curriculum. And so I think that, yeah, to a certain extent it should be us, but it's like everyone's responsibility and we could do better in so many different aspects.
0: Yeah. So speaking of toolkits, we were just talking about symptoms and diagnosis and online and how prevalent misinformation is. Uh, Would you be (laughs) able to explain to us in details like your own personal vaccination experiences, some of the expectations attached to vaccinations? uh, Because as the rollout, the mass level of rollout is getting closer and closer on an entire collective level. I think the conversation about vaccinations, and I'm sure this is a question that you've being asked on every single podcast and every single interview, every single interactions. But uh, I think it would be a disservice to our listeners if we don't utilize this resource, AKA you. Yeah, how would you uh, explain and inform the public about your own experiences along with just the science behind it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, you know, depends on which vaccines we're talking about, because um, there are two that are already have emergency use authorization and the third one on the way. But I think that the way to think about vaccines is really everything in medicine is weighing risks versus benefit. And you know there's not any medication or treatment out there that is 100% risk-free. But when we think about the vaccine, it's no different, right? It's not 100% risk-free, but we have to weigh that against the risk of actually contracting COVID and potentially getting a severe illness from it. And it's not only the acute illness, but also, you know, potential long-term effects of it. And that's why, you know, we're all very, you know, passionate about trying to get as many people vaccinated, because the frustrations that everyone has about wearing masks and physical distancing and you know, being on lockdowns in different parts of the country and not being able to have kids go back to school, like these are things that we can change. And but that it takes all of us having a certain degree of getting the vaccine and contributing to achieving herd immunity for that to happen and so you know as much as and i know everyone has different concerns about the vaccine some people are more concerned about you know symptoms after getting the vaccine and other people have concerns that might not be based based on very much evidence and unfortunately are being spread around because of various conspiracy theories or whatnot so it really depends like how to go about addressing people's concerns but um but the bottom line is that if we want this to be over, this is a key, key step for us to get there.
0: Could you explain the concept of herd immunity to the people? Because I know what that means, you know what that means, Aiden knows that mean. but for the more consumers who carries maybe a little bit of healthy skepticism, sure. would you be able to uh, explain that concept?
2: Yeah, it's basically making sure that enough, large enough proportion of the population is immune to the virus so that those at greatest risk don't get it people aren't able to um, get the vaccine for whatever reason can then also be protected and so you're essentially achieving population-wide protection even if it's not everybody getting the vaccine but it's enough to basically stamp out the, the pandemic these are steps that have been shown to work through other diseases that we've dealt with right other things that We've been um, routinely vaccinated from whether it's smallpox or polio, you know, it's the same kind of general public health concept at play here. The vaccine itself is different. If we're thinking about the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, those are mRNA vaccines. So they are a new type of vaccine because there are a lot of different kinds of vaccines and how that immunity is generated and delivered to the person. But, you know, these vaccines are very effective and they're generally very safe and we have you know it's been tested in thousands and thousands of people before even being rolled out to the general public here.
1: Yeah I was wondering if we could kind of dive into that a little bit of the fact that it's safe and the fact that it's been tested and even like what's been seen so far because I think at least in my experience a lot of the resistance I've heard is the fact that it's so new right just Mm -hmm. no one's seen technology like this before but as you pointed out it's been tested it's Sounds like it's been succeeding, all things considered. I was wondering if you could give us kind of just some specifics around those first few months of this rollout. What have you seen in patients, your own experience, just in terms of safety and I guess subsequently success moving forward?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of unknowns. Like, don't get me wrong. I think that there are still ongoing trials about long-term uh, effects. There's still ongoing trials about vaccines for kids because this is generally for you know adults. Uh, there's also a lot of questions about you know whether or not this really helps curb transmission because what we do know is that the vaccines currently really help out with preventing severe illness. So, and that's the key thing is that we don't want people to die from COVID. The general idea is that you know, if you don't have a severe illness, then you're less likely to pass it on because you know, you're not having the symptoms. Although you know, there's also asymptomatic transmission for people who don't have symptoms, you know, being able to spread it still. And that's the whole concept you know, of you know, whether or not transmission can really be curbed with the vaccine. But um, you know, if we look at the number of bad outcomes from the vaccine itself, they're very, very rare. And so, um, again, we're weighing the risks and benefits, right? The the risks of getting the vaccine versus the benefit of potentially not getting this deadly virus that we know has already killed over half a million people in our country. You know, that's how we have to go about thinking about it.
0: I would like to ask you about your own personal experience as well, because I Mm -hmm. know that you've obviously went through both rounds of vaccinations. And also, this is obviously a joke, but I just want to share that one of the large conspiracies about vaccination is Bill Gates' chip being implanted, right? If you ask me, I would much prefer to implant a chip created by Bill Gates. I'm sure it's going to enhance my functionality drastically. So I don't know why people are resistant to that idea. But yeah, jokes aside, uh, we'd love to ask you about your personal experiences and some of your own takeaways.
2: Right. So I got the first dose of the vaccine at the end of December, and then I got my second dose in mid-January. After the first dose, I had a little bit of arm soreness and that was it. And after the second dose, 24 hours I received the second dose, I um, had you know, a headache and just generalized weakness, just not feeling well. But after sleeping it off the next day, I was totally back to normal. And so, you know, I've also a generally pretty healthy person I don't have any severe allergic reactions to anything so I felt comfortable going into getting it without having to speak to a doctor or someone else beforehand so I mean if someone has a really severe history of allergies then you know it's always best to check with your doctor beforehand but um yeah my experience was as pretty much as expected and as smooth as it could get.
1: Yeah, that's awesome to hear. And this is a bit of a forward-looking question that there's probably not, you know, speculative evidence around, but I'm just curious for your opinion around are there estimates yet around, you know, how many vaccines or how much time to get to this herd immunity? Is there like speculation around that? I know there's probably not clear-cut answers, but would you be able to provide any insight as to like what the time horizon looks like in terms of forward-looking? Are we going to be able to go places this summer? Uh, I mean, Insights I've endless.
2: heard every single estimate out there under the sun, I feel, and some mm-hmm. of them are saying, yes, this summer is going to look, you know, like things are going to be pretty much back to normal. I've seen things saying like end of the year or into 2022. Uh, I think it also h- depends a lot on whether or not people go get the vaccine. And, um, <laughs> and part of the limitation of that is how many vaccines have been available up until this point and the rollout and how that's been handled. But my understanding is that, you know, we've secured enough vaccines for the entire U.S. population at this point. So now it's just a matter of getting it to people. Whereas like previously, you know, we, were, we still didn't have like enough for the entire population and we were prioritizing, you know, health professionals, et cetera. And it's a really complicated matter. It's not, um, when we think about how this rollout has been handled, I think people just assume that maybe, oh, we have it. So why don't we just like go and give it to people? But the logistics of that are very difficult, right? You want to have people, professionals who are available to give it. You want to have like a safe environment so that not everyone's just like congregating in these massive crowds. You want to make sure that people are monitored for their reactions after they receive the doses. It's not easy. And, you know, if you just said like, oh, yeah, I just where can they have all these people at once, right? And hospitals are not the place to have that many people at once. Now they're retail pharmacies and like stadiums and, and other places that are um, administering the vaccine now. But the sooner people can get it, then the this is gonna be over. I mean, it's as simple as that. And whether that's this summer or this fall, I mean, we can all speculate, but hopefully, you know, hopefully soon sometime this year,
1: I hear you. That's a great perspective. And I'm glad you kind of dissuaded some of those myths because I think, you know, to someone that's just the end user getting the vaccine, it's hard to like see all of the trickle down elements of, you know, the logistics involved, everyone that needs to be available for it. And I guess this is more a hindsight facing question, especially looking at your experience as a doctor with public health, any big lessons that you saw from this whole experience, either it's new ways of thinking about the health system, new ways that you see people responded to them. Just, I'm really curious for your thoughts of big reflections and or perspectives around this country and even world in general, just around this whole pandemic time.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, we had a pandemic playbook that was thrown out at the beginning. (laughs) Um, So that's number one. I think that Wait, could grew- we
1: unpack that could we unpack that a little bit just because I'd really love what do you mean we had a pandemic playbook? Not to cut you off at all, but I think just glossing yeah. over that is really important and I'd love to just hear the story well, behind I think it. The
2: Bush administration and the Obama administration had a pandemic playbook about how to handle exactly a situation like this. Like it's not that people didn't see this coming. People saw this coming at some point. You know, we this isn't the first pandemic to hit the planet. <laughs> you know, there's been so many and there was also, you know, not too long ago, H1N1, there was Ebola that never really made its way over here, but certainly like splashed across headlines at the time. And, you know, we were preparing ourselves for a moment like this. And so that, I think that's the number one thing is that there was a game plan and it wasn't followed. And I think that partly that's who's boost to blame is unfortunately the previous administration and how they handled that. And it certainly didn't help that On top of that, there was a lot of, like, messaging on social media that was kind of misleading people or not evidence-based and got people thinking about, fixated on certain things that didn't matter or just didn't work. And, you know, again, that hopefully is a blessing for the future so that we all understand the impact of social media and the need to be more mindful about how we handle this. So, like, by the time some of these social media platforms got around to... Monitoring these conversations a bit better, you know. I don't want to say like censorship, but you know, at least trying to curb some of the misinformation. It was already a bit too late. You know, I always go back to comparing the U.S. response to Taiwan's response, or I mean, New Zealand for that matter, or some of these other countries. You know, I lived in Taiwan when I was uh, in middle school and high school, and SARS happened my senior year in high school. So it was interesting to see at the early stages of the pandemic here, it was a little bit of a flashback to that time where back in 2003, when SARS hit Taiwan, like people were scrambling to figure out what to do and it was just a mess. And fortunately, SARS was a deadlier virus, but it fortunately went away much sooner um, after a couple months. But this time around, they learned their lesson and they had a plan. And so, I would highly recommend for anybody who is interested. Um, there's a YouTube video. It's a half an hour long documentary called Trust, and it was put out by the Taiwan CDC. It's in Mandarin, but there are English. They have an English version with English subtitles. Was filmed at the beginning of 2020 when they responded, and it it's just night and day the way they responded to it. They were saying that at the end of December, they were monitoring social media like. They all, always do, and they noticed that there was this outbreak happening. Within a week or so, they basically jumped to do all these things. They like started controlling the borders, and you know, people traveling in from um, Wuhan, China. And then they like, you know, had put together a committee to like start working on this. And by January fifth, I think of last year, they were having daily press conferences about the pan- you know. And so the result is that to date out of 24 million people who live there, there's been less than a thousand cases and only nine deaths. Even now that's where they are. And so life is pretty much as normal there. People wear masks and whatnot, but one of the major reasons why they were able to do that is because they're so strict on the quarantine policy. Anyone traveling into the country, it's a strict 14 day quarantine and you, and they basically make sure that, you are not exposed to anyone else in that period, and they're very, very strict about it. And you know, it's got me wondering, like, whether or not some of the strategies that they have in place there would fly here in the U.S. And probably, probably wouldn't. You know, some of those things, not just because of the culture, but also because of the health system here, it just wouldn't work. So, um, they have this strict 14-day quarantine. You are tracked with it by your location. So if you were to step outside of your room or step away from wherever you were staying, they would find out and the police will show up. And somebody even got fined by breaking quarantine like eight minutes before their 14 days were up and they were fined for it. And, you know, they also had the ability very early on to link immigration records to health records because there's a national health insurance program, which we don't have here. Everyone, um, they could easily kind of track, oh, who recently traveled and kind of target those people and at least like clear them, you know, certain things that would probably benefit a lot, you know, healthcare in the U.S., everyone has a health ID card, you know, on that card, there's, you know, you can see what prescriptions somebody is on, so there's no duplicates or anything like that, like simple things that we still haven't been able to achieve here in the U.S. But yeah, all those things combined have led to a really successful response, which we, you know, could have done here in different ways if we had acted earlier, I feel.
0: Yeah, I love the examples that you gave and Korea does something similar, right? It's also yeah. strictly reinforced 14 day quarantine. And there is no chance in hell those measurements would work in the US. There is like there were protests, there were prevalent protests throughout the countries over mask wearing. And they yeah. thought that was an offense to their liberty and their freedom. Can you imagine we we implement the reinforced contact tracing in the U.S.? But it is interesting how the collectivism values and individual volumes do play out, even in policy rollouts, right? Yeah, so with that being said, um, I think it's a perfect segue to do a soft pivot, do a more personal background, because you did talk about Taiwan, and you are a indeed a proud Taiwanese descendant, right? Mm-hmm. But also, I think you're a little bit different from the typical... Asian American immigration story because you were born in the U.S., you know, Mm -hmm. which explains your legal name, Austin. Uh, However, you talked about correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you lived in the U.S. till when you were 10 and that you migrated back to Taiwan for middle school and high school, and then you obviously came back to the U.S. to attend the school at Duke University at the time. Um, I came across this information. Uh, You can't trust everything you read online, but is it true that a high school teacher doubted your potential? when you were in high school and told you you're not going to amount to anything in life?
2: Yeah, well, I don't know if I, I'd go as far as to say that I wouldn't amount to anything in life, but he definitely was very doubtful that I would do well in college. But, you know, I feel like everyone or a lot of people go through a similar situation. But yeah, my chemistry teacher back then wasn't exactly the most optimistic about <laughs> about me. But, you know, that's okay. Like, you know, it takes people like that to kind of light a fire to prove them wrong sometimes.
0: Yeah, so as someone with both exposure in Taiwanese culture and American culture, like when you came back to US for college and obviously Taiwan, because I don't like to frame everything as good or bad necessarily, because I have a lot of POC friends who like to compare the collectivism values. A lot of Latinos, a lot of Asians, a lot of black Americans. We have the collectivist approach because of the cultural integrations, right? But then if you look at Caucasians or Americans, and generally speaking, they're more of an individualistic approach. But it's not good or bad. They're just raised under different cultural context. So when you examine both the living lifestyle of Taiwanese living and the U.S. living, as someone who have similar exposure to both culture, because I think a lot of Asian Americans become detached through their cultural upbringing and roots the older they grow up. I would just love to dive into and ask you about your personal upbringings and then you know, some of the experiences you've taken away from living in both Taiwan as an adolescent, because you have a lot of passion in education, a lot of passion in systematic approach and your more recent years in the US.
2: Sure. Yeah, I know. I'd love to answer those questions. But yeah, I mean, I'm with you. There's no perfect system or you know culture and I see benefits to both like my upbringing there and my upbringing here you know, part of what's made America like a great country and the size and scale that it is today is because of that individualistic drive. And there's so much to, you know, progress that's been made because of it and how it's impacted the world and how other countries, you know, are progressing. So, you know, I can't knock it for that. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, like situations like this with the pandemic, I think show a different side of that.
1: Yeah. So could you unpack a little bit, just kind of that transition process, maybe big things that you brought from one culture to the other, or even just transitionary experiences, just big themes that prevailed through your transition in so many different cultures?
2: Honestly, at that age, I don't know if I made a conscious decision to navigate the cultural transition, I think I didn't really have a choice. <laughs> I just had to like move from the US to Taiwan and get used to it and then, you know, hope for the best. But I, the transition wasn't as stark because I went to an American school in Taiwan. And actually that there's pros and cons to that. You know, the pros being, well, I was still familiar with the system. I was still had the expectation that I was gonna come back to the US one day and pursue the rest of my education. and. And that this was like a temporary thing. I think there was a revelation once I came back for college, I hadn't really fully integrated into society over there. You know, I was in this bubble of being at an international school. And I kind of regret that a little bit. Not that it was totally in my control, but I think that I would have liked to be a little more integrated into the, the local community there because ultimately it was it felt like I got. 80% of the experience of living there because I was in this kind of bubble. But in terms of like trying to identify, you know, what cultural um, differences are that I've kind of taken away from either culture, the further along I go and the, the more time that I spend living in the U.S., I, I obviously become more and more familiar with what life is like over here. And, and those values, I think, are much more um, ingrained in me, the American values, I'd say. But I think that there's a lot more, it's, I feel like in some ways it's comparing apples to oranges because the history that we've undergone here in the US, a lot of the hot topics and things that we need to work on like racial injustice are simply not things that have really been, at least not in the same form, something that is affecting Taiwan. You know, Taiwan, I think it's different. There are other like ethnic subgroups that have their issues and, you know, But I think like, you know, here, it has to heighten my awareness to certain issues that I may not have gotten if I stayed in Taiwan, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: it does really make sense. And that's how convoluted even racism is. Right. It's they're also contextualized and not even to mention the intersectional racism. It's very sad. That's why I'm trying to battle my cynicism, because they're so complex. And every avenue of change lies like 10 million subcategories within. And you have to literally address every single one of them to tackle the root cause, not the symptoms. So, yeah, I definitely uh, relate with you there. Uh, On that note, since you you were just talking about integration of some of the Taiwanese cultural upbringings and your more current American values, uh, like we talked about in your introduction, you have a widespread press coverages. Like, I feel like your name is literally can be found in every single possible outlet out there. But more recently, I came across your interview on a very prominent, uh, it's, I think it's identified as one of the more uh, recognized and prestigious magazine economic issues in Taiwan, right? Called the Commonwealth Magazine. I do speak Mandarin, and, but I know that article was written in Cantonese. So I had to decipher a little bit. So would you be able to explain, because I think, yes, you've had a lot of coverage in the U.S., like uh, New York Times, BBC News, Men's Health. But I think that carries different weight for you, right, being as a Taiwanese descendant. So I would love to uh, dig your brain about, A, the experiences itself, being interviewed by such a giant uh, magazine from Taiwan, from your home country, and B, what you talked about in the interview.
2: Yeah, it was, you know, an honor to be interviewed by them. I, in terms of how I approached it, really was no different than some of the other interviews that I've had. But because of the connection I have to Taiwan, I think that they really wanted to get to know me a bit better. And I think that, you know, this idea of of health and social media and health professionals being on social media is pretty new to them. Like there are far less people in Taiwan doing doing this, whereas like in the US, I think that it's become much more widespread and accepted. What the article goes into is basically a lot of my personal journey and journey through medicine and, and how I got around to doing the whole social media thing over here. But it also uh, interviews some of my colleagues and supervisors, like my boss over here, the CEO. Of Jefferson Health and the president of Thomas Jefferson University, uh, Dr. Clasco, as well as the chief of endoscopy at the National Taiwan University, who also happens to know me, but they had um, interesting perspectives because I didn't speak to them. You know about the article. I just said that hey, they're going to interview you um, if you're available to comment, and it was interesting to kind of hear their perspective because, you know, Dr. Clasco, CEO of Jefferson, is super encouraging and forward-thinking and, you know, again, I'm, I'm lucky that there is a leader at my institution like that because that doesn't uh, exist at most places, especially for a huge health system like ours. But to know that, you know, he's in support of this and like sees the value in it, I think speaks volumes.
1: Definitely. I think you introduced a really interesting idea and that being leadership within healthcare. I think you mentioned forward-looking, innovative but really looking forward as to the health landscape that we face right now, say you're speaking to either present doctors, forward-looking doctors, or even just people within healthcare, what do you think are the big elements that make up both responsible and effective leadership within such a complex system such as healthcare?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've been doing a lot of, I've been asking myself a lot of the same questions lately. (laughs) And I think that you know, there's no what I what I've kind of grown to to recognize is that there's not one model for what a doctor should be like, or or what a healthcare leader should be like. It really depends on what the matter is that we're trying to tackle. And you know, somebody even when we're thinking about different specialties, all specialties are necessary to a fully address healthcare. Right. But even um, within a specialty, there are doctors who are more focused on the one-on-one interactions and delivering patient care, you know, on the front lines, so to speak. And then there's other doctors who are more focused on public health efforts, which are just as important, or, you know, doctors who are trying to think of ways to improve more lives kind of on a broader scale, whether it's people who are working the pharmaceutical industry or, you know, the... um, Uh, device industry or, you know, um, advocating, you know, with the government or working in public office. So it really depends on like what the issue is that we're tackling. But I think it's, it does all of these roles requires an understanding that everyone plays a part in how the whole machine works. Without that, everything falls apart. And especially working in a hospital, I think it's very apparent that that's the case. I don't know how this happens, but I know that sometimes people feel disrespected because some doctors may have an ego and not value some of their coworkers. But I can confidently say that if the person who, you know, the environmental services staff or the patient transport staff or, you know, the social workers or our techs or nurses, whoever, you know, works with us, any one of these groups of individuals, if they're excluded from the picture, Everything falls apart. And I think that you know any leader should recognize the value of every individual component in how everything comes together.
1: Definitely. That's a really good point. And I think the idea that's really coming to mind for me is collaboration and even teamwork. Uh, just from everything you've said, it's you know so many different pieces of the puzzle all coming in to kind of create cohesiveness together. And I think on that note, you kind of mentioned there's such differences, between specific positions and maybe what their responsibilities are and obviously what requires good leadership is different for each of those specific positions. But one commonality that I'm kind of seeing, whether it's a doctor or the transport staff that you mentioned, was this collaboration element, was teamwork, working with other people. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit of what creates a good team, how you manufacture or create good teamwork within yourself and your co-workers
2: yeah i think that it really starts off with respect again and i think you know moving on from that i think it's understanding part of that respect really is understanding what everyone's goal is what everyone wants to get out of their position and what their expectations are and when we can you know, come to a same place of like what our expectations are, then we can then you know, fulfill those expectations. I think when people have different expectations, then you, know, you may come out with a certain product or a certain you know, plan, and it's not gonna fully address something unless it's laid out at the beginning. So I think setting expectations and having open conversations from the beginning is really important. And also emphasizing, just like everything else in life, that things change. And that um, you know we have to be adaptable. I think is really important. Whether it's in my role at the hospital or you know with my the Association for Healthcare Social Media, which I founded. You know those are these are challenges that we face. There's going to be ups and downs, and there's going to be times where you feel like, ah, is this worth it? Is you know why aren't things happening or why aren't things coming together? And there's other highs where things are just really like flowing. But I think that in either case, it's been looking back at this limited experience for, you know, in these roles, I feel that there's gonna be good times and there's gonna be bad. And you just kind of have to roll with the punches.
0: Yeah, once again, I could hear a sense of, you know, optimistic viewpoint. And I think you're, you just generally speaking, embody a very positive outlook on life, which I really, really respect. And I want to lean into your positivity to offset the balance of my own negativity.
2: I, I mean, I try. I feel like, you know, it might, I might be saying that as, as a way to self-affirm as well. Because, you know, there are moments where I'm also about to pull my hair out. But, you know, it always, it always works out one way or the other. And, and looking back, you know, we can learn from whatever experience that is.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to part one of our conversation with Dr. Austin Chang. Next Monday, we will continue parts two of our conversation to further discuss how to manage different expectations in the workforce and to find optimism in life's most challenging and seemingly unbearable situations and his personal strategies on navigating his overwhelming work demands. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.
1: And it would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.